Welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. Today we have a very special guest, and to be honest, definitely a guest that I'm interested in interviewing because they come from a company that uh, is essentially a, a competitor to us or a partner to us or however you want to look at it. But today we have Sean Dotson. This episode of the Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is focusing on AMR technologies. AMRs are autonomous mobile robots used in your facility to transfer goods or products from one side of your facility to the other. This is a super powerful tool and it's a new piece of technology that us as systems integrators can utilize as a tool to leverage your company to be more advanced than the next company and be able to automate systems that at one point were not able to be automated. If you have any AMR needs, you can reach us at rfq at eliteautomationusa.com. How are you doing? Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Things are going well. Awesome. So I I hear you're uh, enjoying a little bit of vacation time now. Yeah, I am. I, um, I was trying to come up with words for it, uh, like temporary retirement or, or whatever. And somebody the other day said, how's your sabbatical going? And I said, oh, that's the word I've been looking for. So that's what I'm going to call it, a sabbatical, because, um, you know, I can't stay away from this industry for too long. But uh it's, it's nice to have a little bit of time off. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For those who don't know, you know, Sean has uh, ran R&D automation, owned R&D automation for what, the past like 16 years? Um, yeah, I ran it for six, owned it and ran it for 16 years, sold it about two years ago um, and continued to, uh, to, to run it for the last two years. Awesome. Awesome. So as you can see, we got a super valuable guest on, on the podcast. Um, one, I just love having business owners as a business owner. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that the, one of the people that I love to interview just because, well, I'm a business owner, but, uh, the, the transition is, uh, it's a hard transition going from like a nine to five employee to a business owner. So there's so many people that catch value in that way. There's so many people that are business owners and struggling with things. So I feel like catching value out of that. Uh, it also too, it puts you in a position of like somebody to really look up to, right? Like that you, that you owned and operated a company for so many years and successfully. And uh, it really just gives somebody to, to, like I said, look up to and, and really inspire to be. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, when I, when I made my announcement about that, I was leaving R and D, um, I mean, the outpouring of messages was, quite frankly, very humbling. Um, I got, you know, hundreds of messages from people all over saying that, you know, you are a mentor to me and, you know, looked up to you and took advice from you. And uh, it was it was really it made you feel like you you really contributed, you know, to the to the industry as a whole. Um, and it's um, like I said, it was, it was a very humbling experience uh, to get uh, that feedback from everybody. Uh, so. I really appreciate it, and it's an industry that I've called, you know, my home for the last 25, 26 years. Um, and uh, the joke is, it's kind of, kind of like the mafia. You know, once you're in, you can never get out. So, yeah. um, I'll, I'll be back in the industry uh, soon enough. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I couldn't see myself really getting in any other industry for probably at least another 20 years. Maybe I'll get bored right. then, but I doubt it. I'll find something <laughs> new. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, like, what what brought you into this industry? What kind of was one of the drivers that that took you into this direction? 
Um, you know, ever since I, I come from a family of engineers, um, my, my father's an engineer, both my uncles are, I've got some other relatives that are engineers. Um, it was just kind of always, always in our blood. My, my mother was a, a teacher and then became a vice principal and a principal. So she's an educator. So, you know, in my family, um, learning was always very important. You know, the big stress was always put on that. And, um, I got, I think I was fortunate to have, kind of my, my dad's scientific background and engineering background and my, and my mom's more um, traditional education, you know, so she had, she taught me to appreciate, you know, reading and literature and, and, and the spoken word and, and the written word a lot. Um, but I always kind of gravitated towards uh, mechanical uh, things. Uh, I would, uh, you know, get a clock radio and take it apart. And, um, you know, I was constantly you know, taking old TVs apart and stuff like that and trying to put them back together. That was encouraged by, by my, my parents. So kind of a natural progression. I, um, you know, worked at a hardware store all through high school and learned a lot there about just general, you know, putting things together and how to do home improvement tasks. Uh, and then I went to college. Um, I helped put my way uh, through college as an auto mechanic. Um, started out at, uh, you know, Sears, just changing batteries and tires and then worked my way up to brakes and, um, and, and then doing, you know, other things, um, you know, suspension and all that. So I always had that mechanical knack and that mechanical, uh, drive. Uh, then when I got into college, um, university of Florida had a really, uh, strong robotics program. So I got involved in the robotics program there and really got introduced, um, for the first time to, to real robotics and, uh, fell in love with it. And after that, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do robotics and automation and machine design. So, uh, you know, right, right out of school, uh, my first job was for a uh, packaging company that built, uh, you know, shrink wrap machinery. And then soon after that, I went to work for um, a company that did uh, Adelaide Automation, that did robotic uh, assembly cells and things like that down here in Florida, which was, which was pretty rare. There weren't too many of them down here. Um, worked for them for a number of years and then... Uh, kept getting bought by larger and larger companies. Finally, we were owned by a multi-billion dollar European corporation that decided we had too many facilities all over the world. So uh, I, uh, I was tasked, I was, I was running engineering and manufacturing at the time. I was tasked on moving products all over the world. Then we came to this robotics group and really didn't know what to do with it. So I said, you know what, why don't you sell it to me? So I and two of my top engineers uh, went in as partners to form R&D as a you know, three-person company back in 2004. Um, and then, you know, flash forward, you know, to 2018, we're now close to 60 people, um, you know, largest in Florida by far, one of the larger in the Southeast. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's been a passion of mine my entire life and I've made a, you know, a great career out of it. It's like I said, it's, it's all I've ever known is, is industrial automation. How is system integration in Florida? Is there a lot of systems integrators in that area or? There's really not a lot. Um, you know, at any given time, there's probably four companies. Um, there's there's R&D, there's another large one on the East Coast. Um, and then there's some smaller shops. Um, and those shops tend to do more um, true, what I'm going to call integration as opposed to machine building. So, you know, they'll go in and, uh, perhaps, you know, change out a bunch of drives or, or, or retrofit an electrical panel or, 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 or do some updates to a, to a piece of equipment as opposed to building something, you know, from a white piece of paper design. Yeah. Um, 
however, you know, Florida is a really good market. I mean, there's a lot of medical device. Um, surprisingly, there's there's a lot of manufacturing in Florida. People don't realize it. They think they think it's all just you know golf courses and, and, and <laughs> Disney World, you know. Right. Yeah. But and there's a lot of those. Um, but there's a lot of manufacturing and, and what people like to call clean, you know, clean manufacturing. Mm-hmm. It's not big, you know, there's not smokestacks and there's not big right. foundries, but it's it's medical device, electronics, um, a lot of defense and aerospace. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, cause that's like a, a thing that like as a company, like we'd kind of like to target Florida just so we could be down there, right? But, uh, <laughs> as well, it's I mean. As you can see, I'm, you know, it's it's starting to cool off a little bit down here, and uh, you know, taking advantage of being outside. But yeah. in the in the summers, uh, it's the reverse. I want to I want to go up north uh, in the summers because oh, yeah. it's uh, it can get pretty bad down here. Yeah, absolutely. One of my uh, life lifelong goals is I want to I want a Florida house for the winter time, and I want a Canada house for the for the summer. Ah. Oh, well, that's, yeah, well, you you and all the other snowbirds, that's for sure. (laughs) This episode of the Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is a systems integrator specializing in robotic weld cell applications, and especially the design and manufacturing of the weld fixture. If you have any robotic weld cell needs, you can reach us at RFQ at EliteAutomationUSA.com. Yeah. But uh, yeah, awesome. One of the other things that you mentioned that was really valuable uh, was how when you as a kid, how you was taking things apart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that's super important to allow children to take things apart. I let, mm-hmm. you know, I let my kids probably do things that maybe not be quite as safe, like operating a drill and they're three, four years old, or, <laughs> you know, I let them take, I let, let them take things apart or I let them play in the tools and, you know, it's definitely frustrating when you have, like, say, for a mechanic set of tools. It's all nicely organized, and the kids are just throwing things out of it, right? Right, right. And they're like, oh, my gosh. But the thing about it is I look at it, I'm like, okay, that total set of tools, one, it's going to suck cleaning it up. Two, it probably costs at least a couple hundred dollars. Uh, but then I think about, like, the, the child's education, right? Like, oh, yeah. Is that two hundred dollars? Like, who cares about that two hundred dollars when it comes to right. like, them being able yep. to play around with a wrench and like pick things up and try to put sockets on different ones? And they're like, you know, this don't fit. I don't understand why I don't fit. You know, uh, right? Those values, I think, honestly, I think that has a huge impact on somebody becoming an engineer and somebody being like able to operate a wrench whenever they're they're an adult. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's it's invaluable. Um, I did the same thing. You know, I'd go raid my dad's uh you know toolbox and i probably didn't put things back in the right place or lost some tools and he got annoyed with me but you know eventually what he did he went and bought me a, a cheap set of tools and he's like all right these are yours and you have to take care of them and if you lose you know the wrench or the screwdriver or the you know the 10 millimeter that always disappears right um you know he's like you're gonna have to buy a new one right you get to learn to take care of your stuff so um the other the other aspect of that is yeah yeah like you said you know things that probably aren't real smart you know I, I took apart some you know old cathode ray tube televisions that had that you know big capacitor on the back and uh, yeah. yeah you know set a few of those off you know um, you know probably could have been a little more careful but you know it's uh, part of that's the, all of that learning experience and um, it's something that I've tried to you know, I've tried to instill in, in my children um, you know. When I go out and, you know, to this day, I still do the brakes on my on my cars, uh, in my trucks. 
Um, I just, I can do it in my sleep. Yeah. I've taught, I've taught my son how to do that as well. And, and whether he chooses to do it himself or not, when he's older, it, that's his choice, but yeah. at least he's got the knowledge. And if yeah. he wants to save some money and wants to do it himself, he can. Sure. Um, and if he doesn't want to, then that's his choice. But I want to instill that knowledge into them so that they, they do know something more than, you know, staring at a, a phone or a device all the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's really important. We, we have to, we have to teach those, those, for lack of a better term, trades, you know, to our kids. They're not going to be a master plumber or a master electrician, but you'd be surprised how many people, even my age that I know that can't rewire an electrical switch in their house. I yeah. mean, they have no clue how to do it. And it's, you know, it's such a simple thing. It's a good life skill to have. And I, and I think we really need to focus a lot on teaching our children some of those basic, you know, those basic life skills, especially when it comes to uh, mechanics and electronics, just even base, you know, really, really just base stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like I, like say for as I change the, the brakes on my car as well. Um, and one of the things I find really enjoyable about that is like, I, I have, I'll take the boys, I'll take the girls. I'll say, Hey, let's go. We're going to, you, you take off this tire, you take off that tire. Like, you know, they're getting that first hands-on experience. They're operating the impact. They, they love it. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit scared, but <laughs> uh, you know, they love it. I, I was, I, I walk and work a lot and uh, I'm sitting here walking on my treadmill and working the other day and I look down and my son's got a screwdriver and he's trying to take apart the treadmill while I'm walking on it. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Can't take this one apart. <laughs> it's it you you unfortunately can um you can instill sometimes a little too much of that. Uh like you said, trying to take it apart while it's moving. I mean, there were some things I took apart that were perfectly good <laughs> objects and electronics that after I was done with them were not good anymore. And uh so I had I had to be uh, be told more than once. It's like, hey, you can't take everything apart, right? right. It's you, you have to ask before you take uh, you, before you start taking the microwave apart, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess when you transitioned from your uh, your your college right into your employment life, um, what what was that transition like? Did you go straight from? Uh, college and you just immediately landed a job did you have to apply a bunch or how did that transition occur um it's actually a little bit of a funny story so in, in addition to to being a mechanic um you know most of the way through college um i also had a job as a programmer um on this new thing called the world wide web um <laughs> so this was back in 95 96 um when you know there was only one browser mosaic um, and I mean, web pages were just starting. It was the dawn of the internet, really. Um, and, and I, and I started working for this company that was doing web design for, for companies. Um, and I get, we're, we're talking, um, if anybody remembers GeoCities, that was like light years ahead of what we were doing. It was just links on a page pretty much. And, you know, little dancing icons and things like that. But, um, I got into that and, and I thought, huh this internet thing might take off. So even though I was a mechanical engineer, um, you know, getting my degree in that and, and wanted to go into machine design, um, I actually got offered a job at a, a web company um, right out of college. And I actually thought for a minute, I'm like, well, maybe maybe this is the way to go, right? Maybe, maybe this should do it. So um, I accepted that job. Uh, and about a week before I was supposed to start it, 
Um, again, I'm dating myself here. I was looking through the newspaper at the job postings and uh, saw a, a design uh, engineer, mechanical design engineer for a packaging company. And, and I said, well, well, heck, I mean, that's what I went to school for. You know, maybe maybe I need to go you know, give this a, you know, let's give it a chance, right? Let's, mm -hmm. so went and interviewed there and, you know, they, they liked me enough that they offered me a job on the spot. I really was amazed at the shop. I mean, you know, lays and mills and presses and, and, and you're putting all these machines together. Um, and so I ended up, uh, you know, calling the web company and saying, Hey, sorry guys, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to take that job and ended up taking the design job. Now I look back at that now and like, well, could I, you know, I have been one of the early guys into, you know, Google or Facebook or something like that. Maybe who knows, but you know, I'm happy with what I've done and um, you know, going straight from school into, uh, into work was, uh, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty shocking when I found out some of the things I didn't know. Um, you know, yeah. Engineering school teaches you a lot of things. It teaches you how to think. Um, it teaches you how to find the answer. Uh, but some of those practical skills, um, like, you know, I had never operated a, a, a lathe or a mill uh, until uh, I, I got into the, you know, the real workforce. My, my high school did not have a shop class. They just didn't, they didn't offer it. Um, so I was never really exposed to that sort of stuff. So um, it was a bit of an eye opener when I designed my first few parts and the CNC guy comes out and says like, you realize this is going to take like nine setups to make this part. Right. And I was like, What's the setup? Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was a little bit of baptism by fire. Um, so I, I've always thought that the education system, we really need to, even even in a four-year degree, there need to be a little bit more practical um, skill sets. Um, you, know, you know, let's take a class in CNC machining. You're not going to turn me into a CNC machinist in one semester, yeah. but at least as an engineer, I'll understand you know, don't, don't make, you know, 15 setups on a part and, you know, you can't have square corners, you know, you need, you need to have round corners and, and that type of stuff. And, and I don't think right now that the four year um, degree is really teaching enough of that stuff. Yeah. It's gotten a little bit better, but it definitely, it definitely could get, um, it could get better. And, and if you want to get more into theory in the higher level, you know, uh, you know, four years of heat transfer and all that, then that's what a master's degree is for, in my opinion, right? Yeah. Well, how, how were they on the uh, training of the, uh, like, mechanical design softwares? Um, so when I was in school, it was still pretty much all 2D. Um, we had Pro-E. Um, we took a little bit of uh, Pro-E doing 3D design. Uh, but it was still, uh, it was still uh, AutoCAD primarily. And, in fact, um, I, I had to take hand drafting in college. I was the last yeah. semester to take hand drafting. So, uh, and I was in 94-ish. No, yeah, 94-ish, 93, 94. Um, so they, they really didn't, I came up in the 3D uh, CAD era. So when I first started, I was designing in 2D still. Um, then after about four or five years, started using packages like uh, uh, mechanical desktop and SolidWorks and then eventually Inventor and, and things like that. Um, then I look back and go, oh, my gosh, how did we design in 2D? Like that, that was, you know, all the layers and, and projected views and making sure there's no interferences. And now 3D, it's like, oh, do interference analysis. Yeah. Is there anything that's interfering? So, you know, I, 
I tell some of the younger engineers, I'm like, you you really do have it easier. It, 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 the tools are really, really much better than they used to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the struggles that colleges have, uh, I think the mechanical side is much better, but like say versus like electrical side, mm-hmm. uh, for, for like for us to hire somebody into like the, the electrical engineering portion of it, uh, there's definitely a lot less practical skills in the actual engineering of, of like a manufacturing system. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've, I've found that, you know, there's been like classes on circuit boards and uh, things specific to that, uh, maybe circuit board design, but then mm-hmm. like, uh, like I said, manufacturing electrical engineering, it's not really done. Or maybe it's like electrical engineering of, uh, commercial buildings you know maybe like skyscrapers and stuff like that but sure uh, there's definitely a gap in the uh you know direct skill set of electrically engineering manufacturing equipment oh i i I agree um and that's that's why i've you know always proposed to the universities of a little bit more of that kind of hands-on it's 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 almost it's almost as if we need to take a little bit of what the trade school is doing and put that into that four-year degree because you you end up with trade schools that teach you the practical and then you've got the four-year degree that teaches you the you know the theory and maybe the, the little bit more higher advanced you know skill set but there's not a lot of overlap and yeah. i think there needs to be more of that overlap between yeah. between the two um you know and and making and making it easier for somebody who maybe who decides to go to a two-year trade school, uh, you know, uh, program to be able to go into a four-year you know, engineering program a little bit easier. I, I've talked to a lot of people, and you know, they're saying in theory you can do it, but in, in reality, when you start saying like, "Are you going to count these classes?" The university is oh. like, "No, we're not. You know, we're only going to count some of those classes, not all of them." So, um, I think overall, the whole education system really needs to take a step back and figure out how we how we close the gap between that two-year and four-year degrees yeah i 100 percent agree because like when i did uh you know i ended up getting two associate degrees and i was kind of thinking i was like well you know this school thing's not that bad i was like i can i can go to work and keep grinding and and get more you know uh more of a degree i was looking to get an engineering degree right and mm-hmm. uh i started talking with the counselors about getting like converting my classes to an engineering degree. And it was basically like, you're, you're at to start over. It was like three yeah. classes of like my two degrees that, that, you know, translated into an engineering degree. And I'm just like, well, yeah, yeah never mind all that. I'm not going to go to school for four more years to get an engineering yeah. degree. No. Um, when in reality, a lot of those, you know, a lot of those classes do apply. I mean, yeah. um, like I said, in fact, you know, you probably took a lot more practical uh, classes than, than I did going through the four-year degree, right? So um, I've, I've hired countless, you know, designers and engineers over the year, and some of them only had two-year degrees and some had four-year degrees. And quite honestly, after a while, you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the two of them. Uh, yeah. it, you know, once, once you get in and start doing this and get some experience in the field, um, you know, they, they're doing, they're doing, uh, acceleration calculations and they're doing, uh, you know, bending moment calculations and all just like the engineers are doing. Uh, so, 
um, yeah, the, the lines are getting blurred and they need to be blurred more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, honestly, like the biggest thing, like, especially with our industry, like, I think skill set wise, right out of college, you're, that two year degree individual is actually probably stronger mm-hmm. in their skill sets. The main thing that I think you could probably get out of the two year degree, I mean, the four year degree would be work ethic wise, you might get somebody who's a little bit better because I think it's a little bit easier for somebody to say, oh, I'll go for a two year degree, right? Like, especially a community mm-hmm. college two year degree versus like, somebody who who goes to like a notarized uh, college and lives in a dorm yep. and all that and, and goes for four years, right? More dedicated to something. You might get a little sure. bit better work ethic out of out of an inv- individual like that potentially. Yeah. I mean, so possibly. I mean, you know, I think a lot of that work ethic, though, is dependent upon the person. You know, um, yeah. I've always said I can I can teach you technical skills. I can't teach you work ethic. I can't teach you sense of urgency. Um, you know, I, I've always hired for culture and for fit. If yeah. you don't quite have the skill set, I can give you, you know, I can send you to training or I can teach you, or I can have another engineer mentor you or something like that. Um, so to me, uh, like you said, that, that work ethic and, and, and um, mm-hmm. drive is more important. Um, you know, what, I, what I do think a four year degree, especially in engineering teaches you though, is how to find an answer. So, you know, look, engineer every engineer i've known once they get out of school after about four or five years they've forgotten every equation well most of the equations they learned yeah. right back in school but we know where to go find those whether it be in a book or on the internet now you know it's like oh i got to figure out how to do this calculation i remember kind of how to do it let me go find the resource and remember how to do it yeah um so that you know i, I do find that that is a little bit of that advantage it's, it's a way to teach you how to think and how mm-hmm. to find an answer. Um, so that's probably one of those advantages. But again, I mean, you know, we, we need both. Um, both are very important and both can, you know, both can provide you with an amazing career in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's kind of go into like how this transpired and, and to you ending up starting your own company. So, um, Worked for an automation company for a number of years, kept getting bought larger, larger companies and, um, you know, couldn't figure out what to do with this robotics group. Um, I, I, I moved products to Canada, to Mexico, to France, to Italy. We moved all of these different because we had standardized and custom products <laughs> at our at our Bradenton facility. So once I moved those, I couldn't figure out what to do with this robotics group. Um, you know, I at the time. Uh, they asked me to stay on to help close down the facility all the way to the very end. Um, so I was kind of one of the last guys out, you know, of, of the building. Uh, in fact, I think I was the last guy to actually turn the lock and you know walk out of the building. But during that time, I went and interviewed with companies, of course, of like, hey, I got to I got to get a new job here eventually. Right. And what what I just found was, you know, I really I really enjoyed that automation the automation environment, but, but also more so I enjoyed my customers that we worked with. So, and I had really great relationships with those customers. And I'm like, well, if I go to another company, you know, how do I bring those customers along with me? Um, and, and so, uh, and the other thing is quite honestly, I wanted to stay in Florida. Uh, so all these companies, all these other automation companies were in 
Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, you know, yeah. places that uh, I didn't necessarily want to move to. Um, so I said, you know, well, you know, I've got these relationships. Um, I've got two other engineers that maybe I could, you know, talk into going on this crazy idea with me. You know, why, why don't we give it a shot? So we formed a, you know, formed a company and moved into a 2,500 square foot unair conditioned kind of, you know, rental bay, you know, in a, in a strip mall type thing, um, which, by the way, you know, in Florida, unair conditioned is just, you know, it's insane. Uh, so, uh, went to our customers and said, Hey, re remember that machine that we proposed, uh, six months ago, that was, you know, $400,000, you know, how does uh, 325 sound? Right. And, uh, because now we got lower overhead and we could be a little bit more nimble. And by the way, it's the same three guys who were going to design it before, you know, now you just got to take a chance on us. And we were very fortunate in that we had a couple big customers who were willing to take a chance. Now, you know, they were not giving us four hundred thousand dollars jobs right out of the gate. They were they were giving us these smaller, you know, fifty, seventy five thousand dollars jobs, yeah. retrofits, things like that. Um, but um, you know, again, four or five customers that took a chance on us, and all of a sudden now, within a year, year and a half, two years, we are building these two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar systems, yeah. um, and uh, grew uh, fairly rapidly uh, during that time. Um, then we came up to 2008, 2009, when the you know, housing market uh, popped and the recession hit. And quite honestly, all of our larger competitors in Florida uh, went out of business during that time. They overextended themselves. You know, the market dried up. Uh, they couldn't they couldn't survive. We were still small enough. I think at that time we were probably, you know, eight or nine, maybe 10 you know, people at that point. And we were able to kind of skate by on smaller jobs during that time until 2009-10 when things started taking back off again. Then there was this vacuum of there's no automation companies in Florida. It was just, you know, us and one other one on the East Coast that, that kind of made it through. And we both just, you know, grew exponentially, you know, 25, 30% year over year for four or five years. Um, so it's a little bit of, you know, people ask like, is it luck? Is it timing? And, you know, I've always said, you know, luck is putting in the hard work until the time comes, you know, with opportunity knocks. Right. And then you're ready to go. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of, a little bit of luck, a little bit of opportunity, but, uh, so after that, then we acquired a machine shop because we were outsourcing all of our machine parts, uh, to this machine, to primarily one machine shop. They were having some financial problems soon after, you know, the recession. They didn't quite recover as well. So we bought all of their equipment, hired their machinists as well, who we, we had known for, you know, 10 years already, yeah. uh, brought them on board. Um, another six, seven years later, we acquired a packaging company that was doing a lot of medical device packaging because uh, we were doing a lot of medical device assembly. So it made sense to do the assembly and the packaging. Right. Um, so brought them on board and um, they, had a, they had a good product. We made it a much, much better product. Uh, we completely re-engineered, took a lot of the cost out, you know, made it a little bit simpler. Um, and then, you know, that became, that ended up becoming over 50%, um, you know, of our, of our uh, revenue at that point after we, we got the new product working. So now we've had this nice mix of everything from, you know, we called it part to pallet. You can take individual parts, feed them, assemble them, test them, put them into the packaging machine, package them, carton them, and then palletize them. Um, yeah. So all the way with you know, one PO, 
uh, one one person to yell at in case you know something went wrong, um, and um, you know one project management group basically. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we were doing entire assembly lines. Yeah, I think that's important. I think a lot of customers don't want to piecemeal projects out. Yeah, they don't want to be the project managers. No, yeah. they want they want one person, one company to take care of it. And, and that's a recommendation that I give to some of the smaller companies out there is. You know, look, you're not maybe a, a, a carton erector expert or, or, or you're not going to build a carton erector from, from scratch. But if you're doing an assembly machine and then it's got to go into a carton, go find a carton erector company, buy their piece of equipment, mark it up a little bit. You've got you to gotta get your money. you got to you make your margins um, and then integrate it into the whole line. And the customer is willing to pay for that extra that you're going to mark it up just so that they have, you know, again, one cohesive line that yep. they don't have to go out and buy multiple pieces of equipment and have multiple contracts and, um, oh, well, that's late and that's not late. So how do you time it? They're, they're being the project manager at that point. And they don't, they're too busy. They don't want to be a project manager. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like one of the biggest reasons like companies are outsourcing these things. Either they don't have the internal capacity to do it or they don't have the internal capabilities to do it. And, you know, especially for the capacity, uh, like we're doing like a lot of robotic welding now and mm -hmm. the, uh, the big thing is they have, you know, program pushes that they have to get knocked out. They, you know, they're switching models for, you know, Toyota or whoever it is they're, they're producing the product for, and they have these deadlines that they need to hit. And whereas like a lot of these companies, they have their own internal machine shops, they have their, uh, you know, design engineers and even automation departments. They're still having to outsource these things. So that way, you know, the, the program can meet its deadline. Yeah. And, uh, yep. Uh, you know, I think that gets forgotten that we're supposed to be the solution provider, right? Like that's one of the biggest things that we say as a systems integrator, like right. we're here to provide the solution, whether, whether we're, I'll, we'll outsource the whole entire thing, right? Like we might buy this from that guy and that from that guy and this from this guy, but in the end, we're going to make sure we get it all put together and it's a proper working solution uh, for, yeah. for the customer. And that's really. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That that's always been my argument about, um, unless you have a dedicated automation group within a manufacturing company, um, you know, I always say things like, well, you know, you're a manufacturing engineer who um, is, is working on a, you know, a automation project, right? Well, you're, you're basically doing two jobs at that point, right? So are they paying you to be a manufacturing engineer and make sure the stuff goes well on the floor or are they paying you to design automation equipment? Right. So, um, you know, I, I think more and more companies, like you said, with you know tighter budgets and, and trying to be a little bit more lean, they're realizing that they they do need to out the experts, you know, and let them take care of it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm curious on the uh, acquisition side of things. How 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 does that uh, transpire? Um. <laughs> Well, I mean, I was contacted for many, many, many years about, you know, selling, you know, selling the company. And uh, I, I pretty much turned it down year after year because I hadn't accomplished what I wanted to accomplish yet. Uh, I, you know, I, I set out, I wanted to build it to a certain size and I really didn't even have a number or a, or a revenue or, a, or employees. I just, I knew that I would know when I was there and, um, so, so I, I turned down several private equity groups over the years. Um, you know, I was approached by uh, the group that I ended up selling to um, probably about 
a year before COVID. Um, and we kind of started some conversations. And I said, well, you know, maybe this is, I'm getting close to that point. Let's at least have some conversations. Yeah. And, um, you know, then uh, things cooled off a little bit. You know, COVID kind of got in the way. Uh, and then they came back and said, you know, look, we've got people um, who are kind of sitting around doing nothing because of this COVID. We're not making acquisitions and we've got a fund. Um, there's no reason why we can't move forward. We, we know this is going to be temporary. And um, they, they and I both also had the theory, which ended up being right, that after COVID, you know, ended that, um, you know, there's going to be an opportunity. Uh, there's going to be a resurgence. You know, um, I'm not saying I had a crystal ball and I, and I knew everything, but uh, I definitely knew that American manufacturing was going to have to come back just because of some of these supply chain you know, issues that we were seeing. So we moved forward with that. Um, you know, there is in any acquisition, there is a lot of due diligence. Um, you know, uh, I, I filled out so many Excel sheets and, 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 and surveys and had to explain our processes. And I, and the, and the joke was finally at one point, they're like, oh, we got to get you one more piece of paper. I said, guys, you have everything except for a blood sample at this point. Right. I like it's like so um, I, do you have to prepare people? It it takes a lot of work to sell a company. Um, and, and you really actually have to prepare even before you get to that point, because you need to have all your ducks in a row, because what you will find if you don't during your due diligence, you'll find out like, Ooh, there's a gap here. Right. And that gap could be detrimental to the price you're going to get. So you want to make sure that you kind of pre go through all that due diligence before you actually go. And, and there are companies that can help you with that. Um, you know, I had a couple of advisors who had gone through some acquisitions before, um, they, they weren't specializing in that, but they had done it before. So they, they kind of helped a little bit, um, you know, make sure we tightened up some things here and there. And, and we had all the information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially, if you're, especially if you're being like, if the acquisition is occurring to like some type of firm, you know, yeah. they're the, the big thing with them, they're looking at the numbers. There are certain numbers they want to see, and yeah. they may not be numbers that are necessarily important to you or a private company, especially if they're going to go public, that'll be huge. Right. Right. And right. Top of that, like, we don't work in a business where it's probably like one of the most complex businesses you can operate. Oh you know? yes, absolutely. Trying to explain, you know, why in the custom automation world, cash flow is so lumpy. They're like, you know, yeah. why is it so lumpy? I was like, well, cause you, you get a million dollar order and then you might not get another order for three, four weeks, you know, and then yeah. boom, there's another million dollar order. Um, you know, it's not, you know, like you're making widgets. It's not, you're pumping out widgets every single day. Uh, you know, the other, uh, you know, the other aspect, like you said, numbers that are important to them versus us. You know, when I was a business owner, I really didn't care if that machine, you know, shipped in October versus November, because to me, it's well, OK, fine. The revenue just moved from October to November. October didn't look great, but November looked amazing. Right. Well, larger corporations, they want, you know, they want to smooth that out and they want every quarter to look amazing. So that was part of it, too, is, you know, coming back, not only during the due diligence, but then after I sold the company, there was a larger push to try to make sure every quarter, at least month to month's a little bit tougher in our industry, but at least every quarter was at least somewhat, you know, the same or, or growing. There wasn't a huge quarter in a, in a, in a, in a really bad quarter. Right. Right. Um, you know, when you own your own business at the end of the day, at the end of the year, Hey, it all nets out. 
So right. it's not as important. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing. Like, I don't think that I could ever go to be like a public company or where we have to provide right. our numbers and everything like that. Like, yeah. you know, for us, like one thing we do is we, we operate like just, we operate very quickly. We operate on like the things that truly matter, right? Like financials matter. Right. But we, we care about at the end of the day, are the bills paid? Are we still growing? And right. For us, it's like worrying about every every little nut and bolt is is something that can kind of slow you sure. down as a company. Yep. Yeah. And, and and we and we and we were you know we held that we held that belief even beyond the acquisition as well. You know we we explained like you know uh, for example they were asking for things like um, you know daily bookings reports, which again the, the sister company was a distribution house. They had thousands of transactions a day. They could provide a daily bookings report. We sold. $5,000 today. And the next day we sold $6,000 or seven, whatever the number was. Right. Um, and they were asking for daily bookings for, and I said, no, I said, our daily bookings are zero, 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 a million, zero, 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 zero. Yeah. I like, I'll give you a monthly bookings. Uh, so, yeah. um, yeah. so they were, and then they understood that, you know, after, after we had some conversations, um, same thing, you know, I, Nuts and bolts and screws. When you're talking about distribution, every little penny counts. When you're talking about machine, it's a rounding error at that point, right? We're not going to spend the time to track every little tiny thing when, when you know, a machine can take a couple thousand dollars swing either direction yeah. daily, almost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whenever so, like with the acquisition after that period of time, was there like a a period of time where you had to essentially train that company even more so? Or were you kind of just there to solely operate? Um, the for, for the first year or so, um, they left us pretty much alone. Um, there was a few things that low hanging fruit, like some of the back office stuff. Some, you know, we we tried to get some of the accounting together. We tried to get a little bit of the purchasing together, um, a little bit of the HR. But you know, we we didn't we didn't really change a lot in that first year. And the second year, we looked at things of like, you know, okay, how can we better utilize shared IT resources, for example? How can we better share, uh, you know, MRP, ERP systems, things like that? Like, let's let's make the one plus one equal three, right? right. Um, but yeah, there was some training uh, that, you know, I, I would have the same conversations sometimes multiple times, you know, every month. Well, why, why do the numbers look like this? Well, remember I told you, you know, last month that, you know, this is why, because we're on percent complete. And so until we get the, the material in, we really can't turn it into revenue. And, uh, you know, like, why does this month look bad? Well, because the month before and after it were amazing, right? We just, because of supply chain, we couldn't get material in on in March. Therefore, March was kind of low, but then April was double what March was. Therefore, it all kind of evens out. So, yeah, yeah. I, but then after, you know, a few months, they're like, oh, okay, all right, we get, we get it. We understand. It's just right. different than what they were used to. Um, yeah. it's, not, it's not better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, absolutely. How did uh, the acquisition thing work on the, on R&D's acquisition of like, say first the machine company, machine shop? Mm -hmm. Um, that one was a little simpler. I mean, first of all, it was a smaller, you know, sm much smaller in scale. Right. Um, but, but basically I talked to the owner of the machine shop and, and quite honestly, it was a little bit of laziness. It was, we, we had, we were sending them probably 90% of our machine parts. We had a, mm -hmm. we had a couple, um, uh, you know, a couple bridge ports and a couple lays in, in our shop and we could make some parts, but that was mainly to, 
you know, modify parts or touch up parts or that emergency little bracket you need or something like that. Uh, so once they said that they were going to you know, close the doors, you know, part of it was like, oh, my gosh, I got to go find another supplier. Now I got to teach them how we liked parts need to be made and, and follow our standards and all of that. And, um, and I said, well, you know, what's going to happen to all this equipment? And he's like, well, you know, I'm financing most of it all through the bank. So you know, the bank's just going to take it back. So I called up the bank and I said, do you guys really want a bunch of hosses, you know, that you're going to have to go resell? And the bank's like, no, we really don't. And I said, all right, well, what if I offered you, uh, and I don't remember what it was, but it was, you know, it was like five cents on the dollar, you know, what if I offered you a really low ball number for all this equipment? And we negotiated on, on a number and maybe went to, you know, seven or eight cents on the dollar or whatever it was, but uh, they did not want any of that equipment. So uh, ended up buying all the equipment from the bank um, and, again, hired their two uh, machinists who knew how to make our parts. They knew our style. They knew what we liked. You know, we didn't – it got to that point where I didn't have to put, you know, every little tiny note on the drawing because they knew what we, how, we, how we designed. So, um, yeah, it worked out really, really well. So um, probably the hardest part was, you know, go, going hiring a rigging company to, to move all these CNCs, you know, into our shop and – Honestly, we didn't have the space to be, you know, to, to, to fit them. So we jammed them all in a corner. Um, and then as we grew the company, we added more equipment and more equipment. And now we have an entire, you know, R&D has an entire area dedicated just to the machine shop with room to grow because we knew we were going to be adding more equipment over the years. Nice. So I, for, I guess for that acquisition, you didn't necessarily acquire the whole company itself. You'd more so just acquired its equipments and whatnot. And a few. Yeah, that was a, yeah, that was an asset uh, sale. Right. So um, the second acquisition um, for the uh, packaging company, that's when we acquired, you know, things like the name intellectual property. Um, We, we, we got all their assets as well. Uh, But, you know, it, it was more, they had, they had a brand. And we wanted right. to make sure that that, that brand, um, you know, survived. Um, they had customers who knew them as right. you know, their old name. Um, over the years, we we kind of phased that name out as we as yeah. customers got used to R and D. Sure. But you know, you don't necessarily want to buy it and then immediately just change everything, right? Yeah. I mean, they they were successful for a reason. We we took again. We took about a year to kind of look at what are they doing? How, what do they do? Well, what do they not do? Well, what can we improve upon? Um, and then slowly made those, those changes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to do like a soft rebranding, even like kind of like we, uh, over here. Yeah. The manufacturing come up we have over here and then we have like sponsored by elite. Right. Right. So like right. you purchase sure. the company, it's like, okay, company name and then powered by da 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 da. So like that right. way softly putting your logo yep. in there. And, and you can kind of make that transition where the one logo starts to get smaller, the other one starts to get yep. bigger. <laughs> yep, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, we went through that with, uh, you know, the, the, the company that I sold to, um, you know, they had iAutomation and then R&D, and then we acquired another company called Panel Tech, um, but they, they had to come up with a kind of an umbrella company. Uh, they ended up calling it CAS, Complete Automation Solutions, but then it was R&D, a CAS company right gotcha. high automation a cas company and and you're seeing that more and more in the industry now you're seeing these larger whether they be private equity or whether they be a large automation company um you know you'll, you'll it'll be somebody a xyz company or a yeah. division of xyz um yeah. and, and and we're seeing a lot of that right now you know a lot of um 
acquisitions or just thank you yeah, acquisition but a lot of uh, a lot of convergence of the uh, in this industrial world not only just in the machine building but in the distribution i mean there's been a lot of uh, movement in the distribution to uh you know, combine a lot of these companies which is interesting because i think it gives an opportunity now there's a lack of independent companies out there yeah um, you know like yourself and it creates you know it, it creates a space for those to grow um, yeah. and then the cycle will probably repeat itself you know over yeah. and over again yeah because i mean you look at like a company like like uh promac they're buying every like right. every every machine builder there is and sure. uh yeah you know as soon as they, as soon as they do that like you said it just opens up a wide area of market where those mid especially mid-sized companies there's gonna be a yes. huge gap to where like these smaller companies are not going to be able to go into these mid-sized companies and do it fairly exactly. easily because there's not going to be anybody there yep yep exactly it creates it creates opportunity yep yeah, absolutely like i get one of the big things for me like when it comes to, like acquisition like because we're analyzing that you know we definitely be some time before we start to uh acquire companies but that's one of the things i'm very very fascinated about is acquisition like i you know i love automation i think i'm definitely probably a, a little a little bit more passionate on business right so i want to be able to become a big enough company where we can acquire companies and do like the analyzation of like why does this company make sense uh and a big thing for me that make that makes sense is i want to be able to acquire like the customer list so you already have the you already have the customer list with the warm introduction of they're they're already doing the work for them they may have been doing work for them for the past 20 years um and being able to with us being a systems integrator right if you buy a machine shop okay now you can take all these customers that you're providing machining services to yep. and there's probably a huge portion of them that might be a local mm -hmm. manufacturer and, and yep. now you potentially have a foot in the door to, to sell them automation pieces of equipment that uh maybe would have took a year or two of, of your resources of knocking on the door to for them to finally yep. let you in no, that is um, that's really important, and, and one of the reasons we purchased the packaging company, like I said, not only just because they made equipment that kind of made sense, is you know a lot of our customers were you know Fortune 500 med device customers like you know Strikers and Medtronics and Pfizer's and the you know Beckton Dickinsons of the world, big big companies. Yep. But what we found is the the guys who were doing you know the groups that were doing device assembly didn't talk to the people who were doing the packaging. I mean, they were completely different divisions almost, um, yeah. even though they were in the same building. It was like, oh, yeah. device is done. You guys figure out how to package it. Yeah. The, the, the packaging company had those contacts at the packaging side. We had it on the assembly side, but not always at the same company, right? Yeah. So, you know, maybe company A, they had a really good relationship with the packaging side, but we had no relationship with the assembly side. Well, we could just call those guys up and go, Hey, can you introduce us? And they would be happy to introduce us, you know? And then, uh, um, you know, uh, now all of a sudden you've got double, you know, double the amount of work, you know, coming yeah. from that company. So, um, you know, so customer lists are definitely important. Um, you know, what is equally important though, is, um, making sure that the company you acquire is cultural fit to you because, you know, I'll be, I'll just be, you know, brutally honest is when we acquired you know, the packaging company, you know, the technology was very good. The people were good people, but the culture they came from was very different than ours. Um, you know, they, 
they, I remember vividly, somebody said like, you know, why do you need a, a, a 150 line Gantt chart for a project? You know, which is what R&D you know, always did. And I, and I said, well, how many lines do you think we need? And he's like, two, PO and the day it ships. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that, that's not how you run a project, right? So um, it, it was just, it was very laid back. Um, so it, it took some time you know, to, to get them to understand the way that we do things that we had been successful with. Um, and I'll be honest with you, some people just couldn't adapt. And so we said, hey, you know what? You're a great engineer. You know, we like working with you. You're a good person. But if you can't adapt to this process, which works for us and we've proven it time and time again, then, you know, we probably need to, you know, part ways. Um, so, you know, some of those were some tough conversations to have. But um, it's important to know that you probably are going to lose some people, you know, when you acquire a company. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, culture is one of the most important things and culture is one of the hardest things to shift. That's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And once you get a good culture, you know, you want to protect it with absolutely everything. I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken about culture many times on, uh, you know, on some podcasts and in, and you know, keynote speeches and things like that. Um, you know, by no means were we perfect, but you know, we always got great engagement surveys from our employees um, saying that, you know, part of the reason it's not just the, the cool machinery and, and engineering and, all, and, the, and the pay and the benefits, it's the, it's the camaraderie, it's the family aspect, yeah. it's the, it's the way the company is. Everybody works together. We're respectful for each other. Nobody, you know, everybody from the you know, the lowest assembler to the highest engineer, you know, treats each other with respect and listens to each other's opinions. Um, and, and, and many times, you know, people would say like, look, you know, yeah, I could go jump and get another job, right? You know, especially in this market right now, people throwing money. Yeah, I could go get some extra money somewhere else, but it may not have the culture that I'm used to that I really enjoy. Uh, and that work-life balance that I, I feel is really important. You know, I, I want to instill that in, in all of my people. Yeah. What, what were some of the core things that was was uh, some of your drivers for obtaining the culture you wanted? Um, I've always just been a big believer in – I don't care necessarily within within reason, you know, how long it takes you to get something done or that you're, you're clocking in and clocking out at eight and at, you know, at five and all that sort of stuff. Um, to me, it's the objective. So I want, I want to tell my employees, here's the objective, here's the outcome, here's your tool set to get it done. Do you agree that you can get it done by this, this date? Yes, I can. Okay, great. If you have any problems, please come tell me as soon as possible. So we can, you know, you know, address that problem earlier in the process. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, we, we, we had a, you know, I think a lot of people have heard this about R&D. We had a, uh, that unlimited vacation policy since day one, 18 years ago, before any of the, you know, any of the tech companies started doing this. Wow. Um, and people all the time were like, how do you have unlimited vacation and all? I said, because you just tell people, here's the work that needs to get done, get it done. And if you can get it done and still take that Friday off, you know, to go fishing, uh, great. I, I don't care, right? If you can work from home, better than you can work from the shop. So, you know, programmers are notorious. Put on the headphones, you know, pound down the keyboard, head down. They don't want to be bothered. If they're in the office, people are coming up to them, you know, chit-chatting or asking them about a question. If they're working from home, they're, they're getting done, you know, 
25% more work sometimes than they are, you know, in, in the office. So we've just always been very trusting, um, you know, the old phrase, trust, but verify, right? It's like, we're going to trust you, but we're going to check up just to make sure you're getting that work done before all of a sudden we're at the deadline and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm nowhere near done. Um, but it's empowering people to make their own decisions. I think another important thing too is, is telling people that failure is okay, right? Asking for help is okay. Now, I don't want you to fail at the same thing multiple times, right? Learn your lesson from your failure and hopefully you won't do it again. But, um, you know, you can make mistakes. We're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go uh, crucify somebody because, because they forgot to order an air cylinder. We have to pay UPS red to get that yeah, air cylinder. At. Um, yeah. It happens. Now, if you do it all the time, yeah, sure. We're going to have a talk. Right. Yeah. But the other aspect of that is um, asking for help in a lot of organizations. Asking for help is seen as a sign of weakness. Mm. And we believe the exact opposite. If you, if you sit there and pound your head against the wall trying to figure this thing out for a week and you can't figure it out, meanwhile, your tube mate, if you just asked him a very simple question, he would have said, oh, this is how you do it. Yeah. It could have saved you a whole week of time, right? Yeah. So ask for help. If, if you're the stubborn one who won't ask for help, to me, that's a negative. Yeah. So, you know, those are just kind of some of the small things, you know, just trying to make you know, work as much fun as possible. Um, it, it, it doesn't, you know, if you're not enjoying work, you're, you're going to be miserable and you're not going to, you're not going to stay at that company. You've got to really enjoy doing what you do. And uh, a lot of that's not just the technical aspects of what you do, but it's the social aspects of, of working with everybody else at your company. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, one thing about us as a company, we're a very remote based company. We, we were founded at the beginning of covid so right. we started off, we started off remotely and then just it kind of works out for us. And, uh, the, the, the one issue with remote is there's automatic psychological disconnection of individuals. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that, 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 that becomes challenging for a company to get everybody together in the same room to ask yep. questions whenever, whenever they have some type of issue or, you know, I guess one of the things that we may deal with sometimes will be like, we want that level of communication. And, and I also want to see that level of communication, right? I want to see that, that Billy Joe is asking Sally Sue, hey, where are we at with this? What are we doing with that? Hey, can you help me with this? Like, I like to see that type of communication because if I see that, then I know we have a, a team atmosphere going on, right? Yeah. And, and we're getting to the point where we're big enough where we have like departments and stuff like that. And you can kind of see it in, in between different departments and whatnot, like who has that team working yeah. atmosphere versus like who's just like clocking in, doing their work and clocking out. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. We um, it's a hard thing to do when you're fully remote. It, it is, um, you know, th there's there's things you can do having you know, using things like Zoom and Teams and all that and, and having group, you know, groups together. And I think sometimes you've got to do it sometimes with, with not even an agenda per se in mind. I mean, you might have a general topic and, and trust me, I'm a big person. I don't want to have extra meetings. You know, I want to get to the meeting, get it done and get it over with. But sometimes you just need that, like you said, that little bit of com camaraderie. So like during COVID, when we had a lot of people remote, we, we would use teams and we would have a happy hour, you know, where there's, you know, there's 
30 people in, in, in the box or whatever. And we're all just kind of enjoying our, you know, our beer at home or our cocktail or whatever. And uh, just kind of, you know, chatting and, you know, it gets a little complicated with that many people, but it, yeah. it was fun. And it kind of kept the, it kept the energy going during a period of time where we were all very you know, separate from each other. Yeah. Um, you know, also, I, I do believe that remote works, but I also, in our industry, when we are manufacturing something, obviously, you know, like we, we never shut down fully because we had to keep producing machines. Yeah. So we sent people home that could be home. But, you know, the assemblers and the machinists, I mean, they had to keep coming yeah. in. Anyway, I, I never missed a day. I was, you know, I, I worked the entire time as well because yeah. I felt like I needed to be there to kind of you know, make sure everything was held together. And, and most of my managers also, they, they wanted to come in as well. Um, but it, it's in a situation where you are fully remote, I think it's important to take the time and spend the money to bring people together for team building exercises or go do something, you know, fun, uh, rent, rent, rent out a, a, a bowling alley and get a bunch of food and, and have yeah. some fun because you don't necessarily get a lot of that water cooler talk, you know, and, and, uh, you know, social interaction when you are more remote. Um, you know, we've got some fully remote employees that we fly down at least once a quarter, if not more, just so that they can be with the team. And we put them up in a hotel for a week, um, so that, um, you know, they, 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 they get that social aspect yeah. as well as the technical aspects. Yeah, absolutely. That's super important. 2023, one of our goals is we're really striving to do uh, a company-wide vacation. So we'll oh, go rent yeah. out like a resort. I want to do something, we want to do something really cool. Like, I don't, we're not yeah. exactly sure where we're going to go, like Hawaii, Philippines, stuff like that. We want to do something really, really cool. Like, uh, and then also do, do like a little bit of business type of stuff where we give oh, like, projections of the company and all that good stuff. But really just mainly being like getting people's families together, getting everybody to yeah. to, to be in one place and, and also experience yeah. something really cool together. You know, I think that's big is like mm -hmm. experiencing cool things you know, yeah. as a company. Yeah, I mean, I've been a part of, of strategy sessions where, you know, during the day, you're in a big conference room going over strategy. And, and, and strategy doesn't have to be boring. It can be fun. I mean, you can make a lot of this stuff fun. You throw in some fun activities in the middle. And then at night, you go out and do the you know, the fun activities with the families and things like that. So um, and then the one of the days you don't do strategy. You just have fun all day and go oh, and do, yeah. you know, do, do fun stuff. And um, it, it really I think that that mix is good because you need the you need the stress release to be creative when you're dealing with the strategy. If you're just sitting in a conference room just doing strategy all day, you're in a you're going to burn out really fast. Um, so it serves it serves purposes both ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sean, do you have any uh, particular values that you can add to somebody who's coming into our industry? Um. You know, we have our, our company, you know, values that we created years ago. Um, you know, one, one, of the, one of the important ones for me that I always used was sense of urgency. Um, I find that, you know, left to your own devices, a lot of times people will, uh, people will procrastinate. They'll, they'll put things off um, and they really don't mean to. Um, it's, and I've especially noticed this, and I'm not taking a shot at the younger generation, but I've just noticed with, with the millennial and, and Gen Z, um, you know, all like, hey, did you talk to the vendor? Well, you know, I sent them an email. 
okay, did you hear back? We know that was a few days ago. Like, then pick up the phone and call them. Like, why, yeah. why are you why are you waiting? Email is passive communication. Phone is, is active communication. Yeah. If you need that answer now, pick up the phone and call them, right? Yeah. Um, I always say, always end a conversation. If there's an action item, if you owe me something, say, okay, and you're going to get that to me when? Because yeah. if you just say, like, you know, as soon as possible, well, your as soon as possible is different than my as soon as possible. Yeah. We need to have an agreement. Oh, okay, by end of business on Friday? Okay, great. Now we have an expectation that I'm going to hold you to that expectation to get me that information. Unless you call me and say, hey, something happened and, you know, the factory is closed and I can't yeah. get you. It'll be Monday. Okay, fine. You know, just communicate. So, um, you know, sense of urgency because you've got to move fast, um, you know. Complacency will just kill a will kill a company. Yeah, it's um, like with with companies like ours too. We're building entire systems, so it's like whenever there's a delay on on a cylinder, that's part of a process that now your programmer's delayed, and and so yeah. like the, every one of these delays has a has like a rippling effect yeah, across the right, entire right. scope of the project. Yeah, and and a one day delay at the beginning of a project can turn into a month delay at the end of a project. Absolutely. Right, and 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 honestly, customers don't necessarily understand that either when. When I go to my customers, hey, I need samples for your machine by this date. Yep. And when they don't get me those samples, but they get me a week later, well, I've already moved on to another machine at that point because you were a week late. Yeah. And that week now translates to a month at the end of the project because yep. I've reallocated resources. Yep. So, um, you know, in our, in our, the reason we have that, you know, 150 line Gantt chart is there are milestones not only for ourselves, but for our customers. You need to provide you know, information by this date or samples by this date or, or whatever, a decision by this date. And if you don't, then that schedule gets pushed out and it's not always linear. Like you said, it, yeah. it, it can be, you know, an exponential or, or, a, you know, a Absolutely. multiplier. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we do, one, it's to protect ourselves, but two, to, 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 to get push that sense of urgency is, uh, you know, Hey, we need, whether it be the PO or whether it be, you know, engineering data, we're, we're basically saying, hey, we need this data by X time or it does delay the project. Mm -hmm. Right. By how yep. many other days you delay to give us the thing, right? And, you know, we basically say that, like I said, to protect ourselves, but also the sense of urgency, right? To keep the ball yep. moving, to keep, yep. uh, to, to make sure we get that data back quicker. Uh, and going into protecting yourself as a company like ours, like if, if a company takes one, two weeks to get you some engineering data that you have to have, and you don't recognize that if you don't recognize that in an email and say, Hey, if you don't provide us this by this, this date, right. the customer's yeah. going to come back to you and say, why are you late on this project? Yep, exactly. And, yep. And, and you can go back and say, well, you didn't give me this data for two weeks, but you also didn't clearly say to that customer, Hey, if you don't provide me this data, then it's going to cause mm -hmm. project delays. Right. Which is why, I mean, we, we always had a dedicated project management group. Um, it started off with just, you know, with, with one project manager, and then it grew over time, but um, they are your single point of contact uh, when it comes to elite, you know, schedule and samples. And they're your first point of contact. Doesn't mean that the customer's not gonna talk to the engineers or talk to sales or whatever, yeah. but they're the primary point of contact. And you know, if there's a date that's missed, you know, the first thing that happens is again, it's an email saying, hey, you were supposed to have a samples by Friday. It's now Monday. There will be an impact. We don't know how much because we don't know when you're going to get them. So what, what's your, what's your new milestone? So we'll put a new milestone in, send them a new schedule. And sometimes, you know, that week difference comes out a month at the end and you have to explain to them, 
sorry. That's just, that's how that works, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, your good customers understand it. And a lot of times it was something that was beyond their control anyway. They couldn't, you know, their supplier was late getting them parts so that they were late getting you parts. So um, the better relationship you have with the customer, the better it goes. And of course, we always tell them, we'll try to make it up. We just can't guarantee that we can make it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you, as you're enjoying this uh, this little bit of vacation time that you're you're using right now, <laughs> what do you what do you how long do you think you're gonna take this time off and and what do you what are you thinking about doing next? Yeah, um, you know I I don't know um, you know I'm I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, you know take some extended uh, time off uh, to figure out what I want to do. Um, I know that my personal drive and, 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 uh, you know, uh, angst. Yeah. Angst. Yeah. Angst. There you go. Uh, my, my, my ability to get bored very quickly, um, will, uh, drive me back in probably quicker than, than not. Um, I mean, I already start, it's an idea I've had for a while, a little, uh, you know, podcast automation, AMA, ask me anything. I, I did yeah. a couple little episodes of that because people are always asking questions and I've, I always believe that we're not, you know, like you said in the beginning, like, are we technically competitors? I, you know, I, I don't think so. You know, yeah. we've got enough differences that there's ability for both of us to exist in the market without being competitors. We can be friendly competitors. Sure. I mean, you know, the guys across the state in Florida, we, yeah, we bid against the same job sometimes, yeah. but I have no problem sitting down at a trade show, you know, having a beer with Steve and, 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 and telling yeah. war stories and stuff like yeah. that. Um, so, yeah. you know, that, so I started that just to kind of share some of that knowledge yeah. that I've got over the years. And, you know, you inviting me on this and I've, and I've done a couple other you know, podcasts in the last couple of weeks, you know, it just allows me to give back to an industry that gave me a great career. Um, you know, what am I going to do long-term? I, you know, there's a lot of possibilities out there. It's a big industry. Yeah. Um, you know, I've gotten a great outpouring of, of people contacting me. I mean, quite honestly, you know, I've already gotten job offers, but I've said like, wait guys, just, you know, yeah. I give me, give me just at least a little bit of time to, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of step away from, it's kind of like I always said, you know, it's 18 years. It's kind of like raising a kid. It's like now it's going off to college and <laughs> you're kind of that empty yeah. nester a little bit. Um, yeah. So uh, it, it, it's an emotional thing. Uh, that it's something that you grew and it was yours and yeah, selling it was one thing, but then actually leaving it and, yeah. and not seeing, not seeing all the people, you know, every day. And that's like, that goes back to that social aspect we talked about before. Right. Um, it's just, I miss seeing some of the people. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll meet up for lunch occasionally now and then and, and, and you know, shoot the yeah. shit. So. Yeah. I think you're, I think one thing, I think you're in a really good position to where you could just like, set a period of time and you could like probably even push yourself to do an extended period of time more than yeah. more than what your angsty self wants to let you do. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yeah, yeah. I think I've gotten right. a lot of, a lot of advice from people who have gone through something similar and they all said, you know, don't rush back. Right. Now take your time. Um, you know, continue to network, which is what I'm doing. I'm, I've, I've always loved networking. I, I, I do a lot of it. Um, you know, I, I think I'm pretty well known and I know a lot of people in the industry and I'm happy to have conversations to see, you know, what happens, um, you know, throughout my whole life, even prior to R and D, I really never applied to a job. I, I found a company I liked and I went to that company and said, here's what I can do for you. You know, you may not have that position open right now, but you know, maybe you want to create it because this is what I can right. do for you. 
And I was actually successful, you know, multiple times doing, you know, doing things like that. Um, so, you know, that's probably what's going to end up happening, you know, uh, with somebody, I'll, I'll find a company that I'm kind of mm-hmm. interested in and I'll say, Hey, you know, you don't have X, Y, Z position, but y- you need my help. So, um, you know, let me come help you. And I think we may have lost you. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, there we go. (laughs) Back for an outro. <laughs> I would just say I said I said well I guess it's up to me to uh, close out the show because I, <laughs> I lost <Valka. laughs> Yeah, I guess uh, while we're here, we'll go ahead and close this thing out fairly quickly. But where can people find you at? Um, best place to find me is uh, LinkedIn. You know, Sean Dotson. I think I'm the only Sean Dotson out there. Um, you can also, uh, email me at Sean at automation, Um, and, uh, if you, if you can't find me, ask somebody, they can probably find me. They, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there who know me. So awesome. And Sean, I was definitely happy to have you on today. Definitely a super valuable guest to, to myself and to our audience. Thanks. Um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And, you know, keep up the good work. I, I really like, uh, you know, the theme of this podcast um, or video cast or whatever we're calling right. it. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's something that, yeah, it's catching on. A lot of people are doing it, but I think there's a lot of knowledge out there to be shared. Um, yeah. So, you know, keep, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Looking forward yeah. to talking more into the future too. All right. Absolutely. We'll uh, run into each other at a trade show soon enough. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Take care. See you. Thank you.